Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Before we get started today, I want to thank everyone who came out for our very first virtual WDET Book Club event last night. Uh, We had a number of people show up to talk about Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. We also had WSU English professor Jonathan Flatley with us, who gave us a lot of insight into the book, into Ralph Ellison, and into the ways that the themes in the book, the issues that are raised in Invisible Man, really have strong echoes in the things that we see going on right now in our country. Remember that we will have two more events, virtual events, to discuss this book. And you can find out about those at WDET.org slash events. And if you haven't already, you should join the WDET Book Club group on Facebook, where we are continuing the conversation about this book and the themes in it. Every day, there are more than 500 people who are part of that group. And the discussion there has been pretty lively all summer. So again, thanks to everybody who came out, thanks to Jonathan Flatley, who led a very, really rich conversation about the book and the issues. And again, if you would love to join us, we would love to have you, wdet.org slash events. Up first today, this year's November election might be the most anticipated and the most overshadowed election we've ever seen. I know that sounds like quite a contradiction, yet here we are, and it's 2020, and politics is not taking center stage the way that it normally would because we've got lots and lots of other things going on. Still in all, we had a primary election here in Michigan on Tuesday, and a lot of things happened. There were several other states that had primaries as well, and now that those are behind us, we are fully into the fall campaigns when we will start paying attention to the presidential race as Joe Biden gets ready to announce his running mate and conventions get underway. There is a lot that's going to happen in the next few months, and it will change things in this country pretty dramatically and for some time. So we figured we would start today talking a little politics and talking about what to expect as we get into the fall campaigns. And joining us to help us do that are two people who spend a lot of time thinking and talking about the world of politics. Dave Weigel is a national political correspondent for The Washington Post and author of the trailer newsletter. Dave, welcome to Detroit Today. It's good to be here. And Jill Alper is a Democratic political strategist and media consultant based here in Southeast Michigan. Jill, welcome back to Detroit. Thank you, Stephen. Hello. Yes. All right. So uh, I want to start here. One of the things, one of the big stories that came out of Tuesday, not just here in Southeast Michigan, but in several other primaries around the country, was this idea of a progressive surge. We saw Rashida Tlaib, uh, first-term congresswoman here in the 13th district, handily defeat Brenda Jones, who is the Detroit Uh, city council president. Uh, We also saw in some other congressional districts, uh, progressives unseat longtime members of Congress. Dave Weigel, you wrote about this trend. Uh, Tell us what this means. Is this the echo, the left echo to the Tea Party movement that started after 
Barack Obama was elected in 2008? Oh, in many ways, it's a lot more sophisticated. So the, the, the Tea Party, which I covered very closely, was a unification of a lot of, of disparate trends in conservative politics, and it was very well funded by the conservative donors. I mean, the, the Koch family kind of moved their money from just think tanks to these organizations that spent millions and millions of dollars organizing organizing uh, voters, running ads, things like that. Um, the left has not had that kind of that scale of a cash infusion. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rashida Tlaib raised millions of dollars for her race, but she did not have some super PAC coming in to, to boost her. Um, she did have just a little investment from the Working Families Party um, and in, in, in Missouri, which was race you were going to refer to in St. Louis, there, were, there was a super PAC founded by veterans of the Bernie Sanders campaign. But we're, we're really talking about less than a million dollars from independent money. What was more important was just years of, of intersectional grassroots organizing. And I think in, in, in Detroit in particular, Congresswoman Tlaib is being very diligent, very good at, at uniting all of these causes, I mean, water rights, uh, anti-foreclosure, all these causes convincing people she was actually working on them in Washington, being very visible. Um, she just turned out a lot of new voters and convinced a lot of skeptics. In St. Louis, somebody who is not in power, Cory Bush, was extremely visible in all these protests around, uh, the, well, initially Ferguson for her, but then this summer around the death of George Floyd, and it transferred that energy into, into politics. So it's, it's a lot more organic than, than the Tea Party, and it's not, it's not the same scale yet, but I think it's more robust for that reason. Hmm. Uh, Jill, uh, talk a little about what we saw here in the, the 13th Congressional District. Uh, one of the things that was different this year than two years ago when Rashida Tlaib won that seat is that there was only one opponent in, in the race. And a lot of people had said two years ago that the reason Rashida won was because you had a number of African-American candidates who split the black vote in that majority black district. A lot of people thought Brenda Jones would do better uh, against Rashida Tlaib than that group of African-Americans did two years ago. In fact, she did not. Uh, Rashida Tlaib won pretty pretty handily. What, what, what message should we be taking out of that? Sure. Well, I, I agree with um, what's just been said about um, Rashida just being such a hard worker, building a strong coalition, being a loud and constant presence and voice. Uh, they um, they hit the doors even with COVID, uh, wearing um, masks, raised every last penny, and communicated uh, to turn out her supporters. Uh, the city council president, Brenda Jones, who I have a lot of respect for, did not mount uh, the same uh, kind of campaign, and we saw that on election day. Um, so, I, I just I think that the result is um, is yes, a, a, an excitement that uh, is present on the left, an organization um, that has um, taken root. Uh, but uh, I'm 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 not sure that um, the opposition mounted. Um, mounted a fulsome campaign. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dave Weigel, one of the things that I hear about this from people is that this is happening in districts that are drawn in a way that doesn't doesn't present a lot of ideological competition. In other words, that there, there, there is no chance that Republicans could win 
these seats. Uh, that was true of, of Rashida Tlaib's seat. Uh, of course, it's true of, of Cori Bush's seat. Uh, it's, it's true of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's seat in, in, in New York. And, and so people are downplaying the potential impact of this by saying, well, it means that the seats you have, the Democratic seats you have, may move more left uh, than they were before, but that it can't have an effect on the overall body politic, uh, especially in Congress, because you're not electing more Democrats. You're not taking seats away from, from the other party. How, how do you interpret that? Uh, I don't think that's that's quite true. I mean, uh, you don't need a majority of people who agree with you 100% on everything to influence Washington. And both the, the conversation, which is a little bit amorphous, uh, but literally legislation. So both uh, Congresswoman Tlaib and uh, you, you mentioned Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, they both have been able to add amendments that I don't think would have been thought up by anyone but them mm. uh, to bills that Democrats were passing. The limitations on them have really just have been so far, you know, Republicans in the Senate refused to pass anything. Uh, we need to see how this would look in a, in a different context. But the the party's move to the left has, has happened for a couple of reasons. I think that the, 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 the most important one is that suburban voters who had been safely Republican have moved to the Democrats. Um, the rural conservatives who used to vote Democratic don't anymore. So the new Democratic majority is more liberal generally. But in terms of the issues they prioritize, uh, these people have a lot of clout. And uh, no offense to anyone else in this, in this freshman class. I mean, Michigan has very notable freshman class. Let's lock in Haley Stevens make a lot of news and and but they do not <laughs> we don't run around the country asking people what they thought of <laughs> Alyssa Slotkin's amendment or Alyssa Slotkin's remarks on on Instagram or what have you. Mm. Yeah, their ability to drive the conversation uh, is is enormous. And and when compared to the to the the Tea Party too, it's it's actually I think it's been more efficient. I mean there there's so many people who would glom themselves onto the Tea Party and didn't really have a political strategy for passing anything. They just kind of had protests and said we're going to stop this or that spending. Whereas I think there really is a sophistication on the left. So there might be only six or seven people on top of something that they have an agenda you can write about, uh, an agenda that, that gets gets asked about by other people. And it's not just the candidates. I mean, there's this uh, group of, of, of very active uh, kind of direct protest organizations. Um, a lot of them modeled first after, after civil rights groups, but then after kind of the immigrants' rights groups that were uh, growing in the Obama years. You have the Sunrise Movement, mm-hmm. um, you have Detroit Action, you have all these community groups that get in people's faces, and it matters if instead of them kind of begging for a meeting from a congressman, if there's a member of Congress who invites them in and lets them help write the agenda. I mean, it's, you, know, you throw a rock in the pond and the, and the ripples go everywhere. Mm. Uh, I want to change the subject now to the fall and what we're going to see unfold, especially in the presidential race. That's uh, coming up and is going to heat up with uh, whatever iteration of the conventions we see. And, of course, Joe Biden still has a vice presidential pick to make. Uh, Jill, I'm I'm going to start with this, though. One of the things that was trending on social media this week was the hashtag Settle for Biden. And mm-hmm. there, there is this nagging question, I suppose, about the energy that this candidate has uh, and the ability that this candidate has to excite 
the Democratic base and and maybe steal some votes from Republicans in order to defeat the president in the fall. That hashtag, I think, captures a lot of the questions or the doubts that maybe people are are still harboring about the Democratic nominee. Well, um, I I think there is um, energy. You saw just last month uh, the Biden campaign raised one hundred and sixty million dollars on path and point to exceed um, the the money um, raised by the president, who had um, quite a head start, uh, and um, other sort of organizing metrics um, that the campaign is touting, uh, there are um, certainly some, um, uh, let's call it an ideological spectrum within the Democratic Party. Um, but for these these Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders supporters to sort of step up um, openly in this way and recognize um, that Joe Biden is not everything that they wanted, um, uh, but that they think it's important um, to elect Joe Biden is a way to channel um, that conversation toward a better a better place um, and reminding people that uh, there's so much more at stake. I think um, someone had said, you know, it's it's the choice between the lesser of two evils, Joe Biden <laughs> and his past, or Donald Trump and his present. And if you look at the content that they're sharing, it's 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 very funny and it's it's getting. Um, a lot of um, traction and um, moving around, um, really kind of elevating the conversation to, um, you know, what the what the bigger goal here is, um, and reminding people that you know Joe Biden has um, joined with Bernie Sanders around the Unity Task Force recommendations, um, and that Joe Biden wants to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, and the World Health Organization, and um, is not someone who spews hateful words about women, immigrants, and countless others. He's someone who wants to clean up Donald Trump's mess, move our country forward, and he's going to create policies that protect oppressed oppressed communities, and he's he's going to actually listen to people of color. Hmm. So it's a fulcrum for a conversation that um, that the Biden campaign needs to happen um, to generate that enthusiasm. So, yes, elephant in the room, perhaps, um, that um, some people need to be excited, but this is the way um, to share the information um, that will that will keep people um, moving forward yeah. and um, to turn set the electoral votes. Yeah. Uh, Dave Weigel, of course, everything will look different in this campaign than in, in past presidential campaigns. But one of the things that I think there's a real question about is is the debates themselves and how they will take place and and whether they will uh, perform the same kind of uh, function I guess that they that they normally do during during the campaigns. Uh, Biden now says uh, in, in some cases he's not all that interested in debating the president. Is that likely to 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 hold and that we wouldn't have those and and would that hurt? A Democratic challenger in the in the presidential race. Well, when did Biden say that? I'm un, I'm unfamiliar with. I think Biden, so. he said something this week about uh, uh, not being terribly interested in in uh, debating the president. Uh, I, I I saw something about that early 
early this week. I didn't see anything else about it. I'm, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that he won't do it, but there, there is this kind of, uh, I, I think, question about the value of a debate, not just because of all of the things that are different because of the pandemic, but because of the difference with this, this particular candidate in the White House and the way he might uh, – appear and use those debates. Oh, I understand the question. I just was saying, I, I, unless I missed something, the Biden position on this has been that there should be three debates between the presidential candidates, one between the vice presidential candidates, as as we've had since um, 2000, basically. Mm-hmm. Since 1986, they, they shrunk the number of debates. Uh, so that's the campaign's position, and they are actually in a fairly decent position for a challenging campaign. Now, anyone can you know, show up and screw up, and that's the story. Uh, but the Trump campaign has has repeatedly, and the, the Trump campaign kind of intertwined with conservative media, Fox News, et cetera, uh, have repeatedly just implied not only that Biden would lose the debate, but that Biden's so mentally incompetent that he will, the election will be over, effectively, once he's on the stage with Trump. Uh, this is... Striking if you follow the campaign closely and watch both candidates. I mean, Biden, I think especially since he left the vice presidency, uh, sometimes he gets stuck on words. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a, he beat a stutter when he was a kid. Some of it's come back. But in terms of absolutely losing his place, <laughs> and he's really not that much different than the president, who just has a different style and will talk, over, talk around things and say sentences that kind of land and don't make a lot of sense. <laughs> um, and with Biden, when he's been doing these you know, 60-minute, 30-minute roundtable interviews kind of gets he gets annoyed sometimes uh which i think he will with with donald trump but he he's been weirdly underrated uh not that he's a he's a he's a great speaker and debater he's always had this over talking issue but he's he's fairly comfortable with the idea of of debating trump and and i can't think of another circumstance where a challenger coming into the debate had to deal with his uh with his with this perception that that he's going to do so badly, yeah. all you need to do is show up. He's somewhat <laughs> impressive, and we've we've seen this before in kind of down ballot races where somebody's portrayed as a kook or or incoherent. They show up and it sounds great. Now there's going to be a ton of spin. I, I can imagine that the when the primary is over or when the debate's over, I should say, um, the Trump campaign will be focused on. Did you see this or that moment where Biden did something odd, a little bit like Al Gore in 2000? Uh, uh, but I think they've made it tougher for themselves by implying that it won't just be that he has a couple of you know words that get lost as he speaks. It'll be that Trump is so dominant and so smart that he'll he'll run circles around him. Hmm. I don't think that's that's uh, quite as imaginable if you look at how both of the men talk. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead, oh, Jill. Yeah, I'd just like to jump in. Um, I, I actually was a part of the team that helped Joe Biden prepare for his debates against Sarah Palin. Right, right. Which everyone thought would be disastrous for him. And in fact, um, he, he did a great job in those. Now, of course, we saw a lot through this uh, long primary season, um, and it's, it's several years since, but the campaign committed um, to the three debates. They formally told the, uh, the committee on debates that they would participate. And now I think what we're seeing is sort of a sideshow um, from the Trump campaign, where they haven't accepted the original three but are asking for a fourth to be added, or if a fourth isn't added, to move one up, because they say, you know, eight million plus voters will be voting early now that there are um, more people likely to vote by mail due to the pandemic. Hmm. But it, it does feel like 
a sideshow, and they have been messaging since the the Biden campaign said uh, he wouldn't be traveling to Milwaukee for the convention, that, oh, oh, you know, this is a sign that he won't be debating. And then they're attacking uh, the likely moderators as part of the fake news. And so, you know, they haven't made a commitment. Um, they're trying to demean um, or change um, the plan and process. And I'm actually wondering um, whether the president is relishing yeah. the debate stage yeah yeah uh quickly before we need to break i want to talk just a little about the vp choice biden was originally supposed to announce his running mate this week but is not uh what do we expect from from that and will that will that uh you know will that catapult uh biden forward in 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 the race dave weigel uh we have a combination of rumors and, and some facts about his choice. I mean, we know that we know Biden's opinions of uh, Susan Rice, who's very fond of Kamala Harris, who uh, he I think he he respects. Is he's actually a little bit more comfortable with her attacks in the primary than some people around him are. Uh, we know that uh, former President Barack Obama actually has been a fan of her for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harris, despite her campaign flaming out, is somebody who people looked at as a national figure as soon as she got elected in California 10 years ago. Yes. Uh, and then we have uh, Karen Bass, the, the congressman from California, I think, was floated by a lot of members of the Black Caucus, by people who frankly didn't like Kamala Harris. She has not fared very well in a, in a vetting. Just a, her, her, her life story, basically, as an organizer in Los Angeles uh, has, has led to stories, and, and somebody with a relationship with Cuba has led to stories that have really horrified Florida Democrats and saying, you know, the worst thing you could do to us is when Republicans are saying Joe Biden's old and his, his vice president will be really be around the country. You can't <laughs> give us a candidate who Republicans can talk about being a, a pro-Cuba communist, which I think is a smear, but that's yeah. how they'd betray her. Yeah. So we know he he's actually on schedule, uh, comparable schedule to other nominees for president picking a running mate. But the last few Nominees have picked a running mate right before the convention, so right. next week is right before the convention. Uh, I, I think I don't see from polling any evidence that there'll be a huge boost. The dynamic I'm interested in is just, uh, and and I've been saying, you know, Biden's gotten weird, you know, underrated just because the bars are so low and how he talks. He could benefit from having a, just a wingman who can speak for him, um, but I think it's going to be a little bit. Uh, so I don't think it's going to be a huge ten point boost in the polls. I think the dynamic of him. And somebody who can advocate for him uh, is is going to be interesting to watch yeah. and and could allay some concerns about his ticket. Uh, I think just he has some ticks where he gets overly irritated at a question that implies that he's you know not the most racially transcendent or the greatest you know gun control activist in the history of of the of the, of the Senate or American politics, and he'll he'll kind of snap at people. I don't think the vice presidential nominee is going to want to just stop in and, ha- and defend him every day and have to do that. I think the way they shape the messaging, they you know they put out some fires from uh, the left of the party, from racial justice advocates who aren't convinced that Biden is really simpatico. I think that's going to be interesting to watch. And when it comes to the suburban vote, I, I think Bass from the last few weeks has revealed that she might have problems in convincing these suburban voters who are 90% for Biden to stay on board. Uh, I'm not sure I see the same problem with the others. But I don't think, I think the, the convention itself is going to be much more of a made-for-TV 
you know, literally with a, with, a, with a little audience production. Sure. I'm interested in seeing how that moves things. I think the combination of the pick and the convention, if that doesn't move Biden, who's already ahead, a couple points further ahead, I think that would be something Democrats should worry about. Yeah. Okay. Dave Weigel, national political correspondent for The Washington Post and author of The Trailer Newsletter. Great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And Jill Alper, Democratic political strategist and media consultant based here in southeast Michigan. Always great to talk to you as well. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the return of professional sports is going so far with Bill Shea of The Athletic. And then a little later, we're going to talk about college and high school sports as well. Will they come back in the fall the way that we're expecting them to? Or is everything going to look really different because of the pandemic? Stay with us on Detroit Today.